0: Justin Mazanowski, I am a recruiting, talent acquisition, and gig uh, industry veteran, uh, and you're listening to The Sassholes.
1: Welcome to The Sassholes, a show dedicated to issues within the software as a service industry. Jamie, Jason, Pete, and I have a combined 100 years of making mistakes. One well, of why them I haven't you edited it that it yet? I thought we said 75. To First of all, one of the mistakes is we haven't been doing it for 100 years. But if you take the guests that we have coming on here, possibly. Anyways, we're more than happy to share them with you. Please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. Today, we are joined with special guest, Dustin Mezanowski, talent acquisition extraordinaire. But before we get to Dustin, we got an ad, Carney. This episode is brought to you by Neuronoodle. Hey, athletes, get a doodle of your noodle, a brain map before the season starts so you have a baseline to compare it to. You get a physical every year, right? Well, get a brain checkup before the season starts. Visit neuronoodle.com.
2: Carney. No, hey, Pete. Carney. Hey, Pete. Are the tables turning? Oh. I heard listen. there was a new store. <laughs> I heard there was a new store called Moderation. They have everything there. Hey! <laughs> That's what happens when you don't give me notes, Pete. i still letting your joke. You... <laughs> so, Jamie never laughs at the joke until it's his. <laughs> yeah. I'm only... No, you got to remember. I'm, I'm laughing. The I'm only laughing. reason why I'm laughing <laughs> is because I am ruining Pete's uh, spot on his joke. Oh. Go ahead, Pete. Hey, there's, not, there's,
1: there's, nothing to, there's nothing to ruin.
2: <laughs> How do barbers yeah. speed up their jobs? They make shortcuts. <laughs> I mean, you can't blow this, them all in this one episode, James. Come all, on. I've got them all. I've got them all queued up for beef. Oh, <laughs> man.
1: I was just going to tell you I was reading this book on anti gravity, but it's impossible to put down. Leave us some comments on our blog at sassholes.net. Shout outs. Anybody got any shout outs? I got one. I got one. I got one.
2: John Fagan, two years at Zip Recruiter. He was supposed Zip. to be on our show, wasn't he?
1: He was supposed to
2: be. Wasn't he one of like our first guests, and then he, he was—he was, like...
1: was one of our first
2: cancellations too. Yeah, first cancellation. <laughs> oh, it actually wasn't hey, a cancellation, w- did it? Yeah, he was a no-show. I got—I got, I got two
3: shout-outs this week. Who died? Well, that—that's not my—I sh- mean, somebody did of note, but All right. but yeah. let's go shout-outs first. I got uh, Leah McKelvey at Bullhorn. Oh
2: yeah, I was just about yeah. to tell
3: her. Leah was Leah was uh, promoted VP of Enterprise Growth and Corporate Development, and then Melissa Balson. I don't know if you remember her. She was worked with her on the marketing team. Uh, she is now uh, CMO at a company called Go Health.
2: Uh, I have a oh. shout out, Mark Finice, Two years at Phenom People. It seems like okay. uh, Phenom People is That's the clear of the East. The um, well, everyone agrees to be field. I do like the Hulu. We're not allowed to talk about Phenom People. I forgot, right? They don't like us. They had us take down all the podcasts. Yeah, hey, what like, the hell is that? I'm putting them back up. Never mind. I guys. Yeah.
1: No, I'm putting them back up. Let's see if they're listening. Hey, Jackson, way to listen for the first couple of shows. You don't hey, listen. He gave us Steam music that you never used, which was actually pretty good. I used it for that one show that he couldn't be on anymore, so can't be on the show, can't use his music. Deaths, come on, Farrar, what do you got?
3: Yeah, <clears throat> the guy, Paul Van Doren, who was the co-founder of Vans, sneakers, died this week, 90 years old. 90 years um, old. Totally great obit on him in the Wall Street Journal, really interesting, dropped out of high school when he was 16, went to work in a shoe factory, all of a sudden realized that like he had this gift for production and production efficiency, and then at some point in his life, moved out to California, bought another shoe company, it became Vans. So, uh, pretty
1: pretty neat story. Right va- up on I him. mean,
2: I wear a pair of Vans, but I don't find them to be the most comfortable shoes ever.
1: What do you think he's wearing um, in that coffin?
2: Vans. Oh, I think of classic. Those checkerboard pants. <clears throat> yeah, yeah,
3: yeah.
2: yeah. Those <laughs> Vans. You know, no floor shimes. I mean, the best founder death, and not that there's ever a good death, is the guy who owned Segway or created Segway. Died driving an all-terrain Segway off a cliff by accident. That... Oh. That is one of the most... Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's true. Is that true? One of, yeah, that is true. That I
3: don't, I don't sounds like something people
2: want to be true. That no, Carly he had an not. altering segue. It went off a cliff. And you're sort of like, all right, he died what he did, what he loved. Yeah,
1: yeah. Carney, I want to give uh, you kudos to your uh, Wi-Fi. You've improved your Wi-Fi, but now with your uh, new mic there... Uh, is I it too loud? Gonna, uh, yeah, I need to be a little closer. I think a little closer. A little closer. Okay. Oh,
2: are yeah, you serious? Like I need to be closer.
1: No, <laughs> be like okay. Be like, just keep it where where it is. All right. All right. So we're going to talk about the uh, gig uh, economy here. or We have more witty banter to
2: uh, go through. Well, I think we talk about the gig economy and we talk about Dustin. Dustin, give us your journey. Give us a little bit about yourself and where you're at now.
0: Like sure, in sure. Terms of uh, your journey you started- Started out in the staffing industry, started out in light industrial on-site staffing um, and, you know, was lucky enough to have a great manager there that really inspired me and got me interested within that industry Um, and and just grew within the different aspects of the staffing industry from the on-site high volume recruiting to more of the boutique firms uh, that I moved on to from there. Um, was lucky enough to catch on at, uh, stayed there for about eight years and worked on a product uh, that that really focused on providing our clients with the best talent available out there, and that's really where I found my love for using data to uh, put together strategies for different uh, clients and how to attract the best talent and how to reinvest money for you financial people on the the, the panel here, how to take the investments that our clients gave us and put that back to the most effective areas. Learned a lot over those eight years. um, Met some really great people there um, and was lucky enough then to move into more of a marketplace um, experience with my last employer, um, focusing specifically on freelance um, and contingent workforce um, and and built out three different teams there uh, and grew those teams to really go out and help our clients go international um, with their searches for even just um, for some projects, for some of their larger uh, engagements that they were looking to, to run. And, and that's really where I got my experience within the freelance economy um, and how clients and, and different companies are utilizing that um, in their quest to really complete their projects and fill out some of the, the different needs that they have from a talent standpoint.
2: One of my questions on this, on the freelance economy, right? Um, there are two different freelancers uh, and companies that buy freelancers. There are the very small businesses that use freelancers for like one-off projects, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what your specialization is in, not in the one-offs, because the one-offs are usually done through the uh, e-commerce channel or just through who you know, uh, bringing people in to do projects. You're talking about more freelance, scalable gig economy where a, a company can turn the faucet on and ratchet the faucet down. And that's so, a whole different bind.
0: So, so so the three teams that I ran there, they actually focused on both. Um, so if there were the larger clients that would come in and need some larger projects or a continual project um, like help desk uh, that they needed people to to work. And then there were the smaller clients that came in, needed you know just a, a website upgrade, um, needed some content created. Um, and even some of those larger clients would come to us outside of their larger projects and say, hey, listen, we do need some marketing help or we need some finance help. Um, so it, it really ran the gamut. And My three teams focused on finding those talents in three different ways um, for those those clients at the end of the day.
1: Didn't, didn't you win some Lucite? But you got a little a Lucite uh, plaque there or something?
0: I, I, I've, I've won a couple of awards, but last year I was delivery of the leader of the year um, that led to you know a large re-sign for our largest client. So.
1: You got it in your room there?
0: Uh, I don't have it in my room. It's actually, it ended up being a jacket, a nice little Patagonia jacket with a patch on the oh. side. So.
1: Where, where's ah. the jacket? It's
0: out in the other room. Want me to go, go get, get it?
3: it? Go get <laughs> it. get it. Seriously. It's like an F1 jacket. It's like, well, like while Dustin's jacket,
1: getting yeah. his uh, coat, hey,
2: uh, how about uh, getting some gas? Oh yeah. We should have talked about that gas. We'll it's going to be five bucks a gallon in Chicago. They say by, by summer.
3: It's expensive. It's expensive here now. I noticed it was, and, and this may be cheap for Chicago standard, but it was two, two, almost two sixty a gallon here. All right, here yeah. we go. Um, Let's
2: see this thing. Oh, there we go. Oh, Look at that. Oh, yeah. Up, there up you go. Up Club.
1: Up Club
3: 2020.
1: Hey, I think you got your Up Club right there, huh?
0: <laughs> and it's actually really hot in this room, so I'm going to take the, the jacket off.
1: You didn't get a little plaque or anything, just to check it. I would
0: no, no. The the other award that I won, we actually got a battle, uh, a bottle of engraved champagne. So that was that was a nice. That was probably a slightly better gift that my wife got to enjoy a little bit too. A
2: secret weapon that Dustin has, by the way. When you talked yeah. about champagne, this guy I have seen him eat a Kelly cali- cali- uh, What do you call it? A Carolina Reaper. Yep. He eats everything hot and is in- unimpacted by it. For the most part, I think the Carolina Reaper, you said, oh, it wasn't that bad. And then you took some uh, post photos of you sweating profusely. And feeling. for the most part,
0: Trinidad scorpions I've eaten just, just fresh. Um, The worst thing that I've ever eaten, uh, the most painful thing that I've ever eaten uh, were chicken wings in London. Um, By far the worst uh, experience of my life. Just the, the, it was, it was awful.
1: And there was nothing on them.
0: <laughs> yeah, that doesn't, yeah. I, that's a place I go just got poisoned.
2: London. <laughs> All right, so let's get back to the the gig economy. So, what is your take yeah. on the gig economy? That is, it gets a lot of press at times, especially in the employment space. From your perspective, is the gig economy growing? Is it a fad? Is it the same? It's just becoming more marketable. Um, what, what's your take on
0: it? growing, 100% growing. And I think really what sped it up over the past couple of the past year is, is COVID. Uh, I think what a lot of companies realized in moving away from the traditional office space, the traditional staffing model is that they couldn't have people come on site. Um, And a lot of the traditional staffing agencies at that point had built their entire process and their entire um, product around having talent come on site. Um, and what we realized at that point is we had to seize the moment and really make sure that people knew that the remote workforce was available out there. Um, there was talent everywhere. It wasn't just in the United States or it wasn't within a 15 mile radius. It's something where um, you were able to go out and find people that had the setups that they needed at home, the internet speeds, the computers to be able to handle a lot of the workload um, that people had traditionally come into the workplace for. Um, so I think that it, especially with the experience that we've had and the companies realizing that um, office space um, isn't as necessary as it used to be uh, that, that I think that they'll they'll continue to see the growth there and the, and the the expansion within that industry.
3: There have been a couple of stories recently of tech firms specifically wanting people back in the office. I mean, I've been involved in this conversation a lot over the last several months. Is that, what is that? Is that just humans making bad decisions or is that people saying actually being in a place where we can face to face collaborate is is got more value than I thought? Like what is happening?
0: And, and I think there's a couple of different things there. I know with some of the larger organizations that we worked with that there's security issues, right? So you have to be able to make sure that you have all the technology in place um, to be able to make sure that people are on secure Um, servers. And people do have the ability to not steal proprietary information and and sell it elsewhere. So I think there are some concerns there from a technology standpoint. Um, I know some of the larger organizations that we worked with have some safety safety points put in place to make sure that they're allowed to, or to make sure that they can control some of those situations. I know from my experience in going through um, uh, an ATS implementation and integration while on COVID that there is a lot of collaboration that that couldn't happen because we all couldn't get in a room and uh, whiteboard. Um, walkthrough processes and things like that. And I think from a technology standpoint and the creation of a product that a lot of that's important. So I think that while the the contingent workforce or the gig workforce will be something that will be heavily used, I think that there, you're still going to need to have that core team in place to be able to work through some of those things um, in the office or an, at an offsite uh, retreat or whatever it is at the end of the day to make sure that everything works and is functional. Because Plus- a lot- of- Collaboration can't happen over Zoom and can't happen um, uh, remotely over email or Slack.
2: Plus, I would think, you know, um, with the gig economy, you can't go all gig because uh, those people will then go to their competitors or they'll spin something up. There is propriety information no matter what. However much you try to protect it, it's going to get stolen. A, A lot of the times, I believe with the gig economy, and I've got experience in this, because as you guys probably know, um, Pete and Jason, I was thrown on a project, mm-hmm. which was a complete disaster when I got thrown on it. When you try to employ contractors in your firm, uh, there are payroll and, and potential lawsuits that could occur if you're employing a, uh, like a contractor to work alongside all these full-time employees and not give them the equivalent compensation. Um, So you have to almost segment them uh, in a different way on a different project or at least give them a way or a means where they have a shelf life to be onboarded. Is that correct? So when we used to bring people on, uh, when we brought them on to work on that, we would give them usually two years before we had to bring them on full time because uh, you have to have those written in. Otherwise, you could get sued. I think it was an IBM lawsuit way back in like late 80s that um, was a class action lawsuit that causes problems there.
1: The keyword is control. Do you have control of their day-to-day?
2: You can give them parameters, but as far as control... I think it's also fairness, right? So I might pay you 100 bucks an hour, but I'm paying everyone else 150 bucks an hour plus giving them benefits and I'm not giving you the ability to get benefits. And yet you're working alongside everyone else. I think that's... that's it's more... F- they're, they're saying that there should be a fairness thing. And so that's why a lot of these gig economies and stuff like that start up and staffing firms start up because a lot of these big companies just don't want to deal with the
0: headache. And as long as they put them on a payroll of somebody else's payroll, they don't have to worry about any of those rules. And, and that's why uh, my previous employer uh, companies like an Uber or a TopTal or a Fiverr, they all have large legal Legal departments because they have to worry about that compliance. Jamie, I know that with the experience that you've had, that was primarily within the United States. Once you start to work um, globally and with some of the international employment laws, it gets even more confusing. Oh yeah, um, and and there there are there are countries that are just crazy. That you know, if you employ them for a certain amount of time, they're basically an employee for life, um, and and you have to pay them as such. So there's there's a lot of things when entering into the this type of um, opportunity or this type of solution that you have to pay attention to or you can get burned pretty bad
3: in your intro you were talking about using your passion using data for hiring strategies so you know I, I've got I've got some experience in 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 data in terms of HR and outmatch and, and that's primarily gave to people was was his data. You're going to hire this person. Are they going to be successful? You know, here's much data you can use. Tell me what, tell us a little bit about what you mean. Like what, how do you use, what kind of data do you use? How do you use it? Are, are companies doing that today? Or is this still like, Ooh, I feel like that, per, you know, we're still, we're still sort of projecting ourselves and using biases to hire Talk a little bit about that. I,
0: I think that I think that companies think that they're doing it, um, and I think that there are some larger organizations that have started to do it right. And when I say using data, it's not just to find the best possible candidate, too. It's it's really putting a strategy behind. It's shortening the recruitment process. It's also going and saying, hey, which resources are producing the best candidates at the end of the day, so that I can reinvest in those. Um, and and a specific story that I can speak to this, and Jamie, close your ears because you know I don't want the finance guys to hear this is. We were using a platform um, wallet that we put a ton of money in. Um, I was I was spending about forty thousand dollars a month on this specific resource because there were a lot of candidates coming through, a lot of applications, um, and we were like, "Oh my God, this is this is something that we need to keep using because we're getting yeah. all the candidates from there." Um, what we found out was there wasn't a lot of quality candidates coming through. It was just applications. It was it was candidate flow. It wasn't good quality. Um, so what? once we started to identify and really dig deeper from that first layer of we're getting a lot of candidates and a lot of applications to where are we actually getting hires from? Where are we getting the quality candidates that the hiring managers want to speak to from? It told a completely different story. Um, so that's one example of a way to use data on, hey, listen, this is the best resource that we have available to attract talent. Um, yeah things in my previous lives too that I experienced was, you know, you'd have a an SLA with a client to come in and say, you know, we've got to deliver to talent within 30 days or 28 days or whatever it is at the end of the day. Um, and we weren't hitting that. Uh, and then the client was, you know, really, really upset about that. When we went back and actually started to track what we called candidate velocity, which is as the candidate enters the process through an application to the point where we pass them off to the hiring manager, there were about two weeks worth of them sitting around um, because the hiring manager either wasn't available for interview, wasn't giving feedback, or wasn't um, you know following up fast enough, um, where we identified, hey, if you would give feedback a little bit faster, or if you were part of the process and, and more, a better partner, we could cut out two two weeks. It's not a problem of we don't have enough talent. It's we're not moving the talent through fast enough. So that those are just two examples of how we use data, um, yeah. and I know that a lot of organizations have started to move towards that because there is a story to tell. It's it's something that's quantifiable, um, and it's something that you can then take back to leadership and say, "Hey, listen, this is where we can make improvements."
3: Yeah, you know, you, the way you were talking about it um, before in terms of. We're driving a lot of volume, but we're not driving a lot of quality. Is it, in my mind, it's like classic marketing funnel stuff. Like the same, the same funnel exists. It's just not prospect. I mean, it's prospects. It's not prospects for um, customers. It's prospects for for employees, and so that mm. funnel becomes incredibly important. and And if it's you know half as important in. In human capital, as it is in marketing, it's it's a constant. You know, you have to have that real time feed of data and tell you what's going on.
0: Well, and, and Jason, just to kind of that point too, and to put it more of a marketing spin on it, is you know, I I I'm currently looking and I, I see a lot of uh, opportunities that out there out there that talk about employment brand um and, and mm-hmm. things like that. And I think a lot of people get confused with that and think that it's oh, it's it's diverse pictures. It's uh, coloring. It's you know something a catchy line um, within the the, the web page, um, and what I'll compare it to is it's much more of an experience versus you know some of those things that are visible. Um, so when when I think about it, I think about um, a brand like Disney. Um, Disney's the the most magical place on earth. People go to Disney on a consistent basis. You know adults go there. Um, I hate amusement parks. Um, I don't like tourist traps. Um, what I really liked about Disney was they had the best experience. Um, they pick you up in the parking lot. They take you um, on a tram from there. They give you, they take you uh, around on a train or a boat, and you get to have that entire experience before you even reach the park. And that's a lot of what people miss out on from a branding standpoint within uh, talent acquisition is... They're going out there and collecting information via an ATS or, or, or some other funnel. ATS is parse now. They do all this kind of stuff. You attach your resume. Um, then you've got to refill out everything because it doesn't parse properly. Um, then they put you through a couple of extra questions to get to the next stage. Nobody ever follows up. Um, and then people are concerned about why don't we have a good employment brand? And I think when you're going out there and interacting with somebody that's interested in your company, interested in an opportunity that could potentially be a customer at the end of the day, too, um, and you give them just a terrible experience from a candidate experience, um, I think that that's where the focus should be from an employment brand standpoint yeah. versus yeah. all of the fancy, shiny new website type stuff.
3: It's the thing that drives me bananas. It's the thing that I like about HR tech. And it's, you know, frankly, something that, that we should. In- nailed Chad and cheese down on a little bit when we talked to them a couple of weeks ago, which is why yes. are those things still problems? Right? Like, I mean, when, when, when all of us worked together in the you know early 2000s, those were problems and we talked about them all the time. Mm-hmm. And now we're, you know, uh, <laughs> 10 years later to 12 years later, still problems. Um, nobody solved those. Well, Yeah, nobody solved those problems. We're still talking about them as problems. So, you know, there's this like glut of tech and there is this glut of the same problem. And I don't know where that bridge is. Do you got any thoughts around when do do we start solving that problem? Because it's it's because no
2: one own no one feels like they own that problem. The companies that the black hole effect comes from the companies not responding. But the companies that aren't responding might say, well, that's Monster or, or um, uh, what? Yahoo Indeed. Careers yeah. or Indeed's problem. But the problem really is that those companies can't respond on your behalf because they don't know where it goes. The ATS doesn't feel like – it's it's a magic game of everyone point at everyone else, and therefore that problem subsides because no one – everyone who gets blamed for it can claim that it's not their problem.
3: Yeah, and then and then that stuff drives me bananas because you know you got ISIMs owned by Vista. They've got more money in the than than anybody in the world focused on this problem, and they should be solving that problem. Or so, somehow there's you know so so it is really upsetting to me that we're still we still have the conversation.
0: But, but here's, here's how here, here's from my perspective, how it, how it all uh, has en- ended up like this, because we're focused on the employee that you hire at the end of the day. Um, you're not focused on the people entering the experience. Uh, the experience and the technology is generally owned by two or three different departments on top of that too. So there's no holistic uh, approach to actually going through and making sure that the experience is good. Um, it, it, working for a marketplace at my last company, um, that had that, that experience, that onboarding and, and things like that, a, a lot of things get focused on the clients at the end of the day or at the hiring managers at the end of the day. It's not focused on the, the candidate experience or the talent experience, which ultimately ends up being the product that you're trying to sell um, to your clients. Is Are these people within the gig economy, these freelancers or these temporaries or you know the, these people that you're trying to hire permanently? And I think that that's where a lot of companies miss out is, they think that their clients and and that are the most important part of their mission when trying to interact with somebody that could potentially make you millions and millions of dollars as a salesperson or a product person that could potentially change the direction of your entire company. They're not treating them as important because they're not part of the company yet. Um, Well, it's short-term
2: versus long-term, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The candidate candidate experience is a long-term thing that's very difficult to figure out. And if you go too far on the candidate side, you lose the client side. And the client's the one paying the bills today. Mm-hmm.
1: You know what I haven't heard from anybody is getting back to the contractor role. There's a lot of stuff going down, notably in California. Biden's pushing through his, what, PRO Act or whatever. Hey, we're not getting it's
2: political here,
1: Pete. It, 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 it's defining the role of what a contractor is. So that you know that's going to be changing. That's going to affect, I mean, the PRO Act, I'll read it to you. The three things that they're looking at is the individual is free from control and direction and connection with the performance of the service, both under the contract for the performance of service and in fact. Number two, the service is performed outside the usual course of the business of the employer. The individual is customarily engaged in an independently established trade occupa- occupation, profession, or business of the same nature as that involved in the service performed. So all this stuff's gonna go down. Did, What's a contractor and what's not a contractor? That's going to affect, you got a marketing department, you have a few marketing yeah. people and you want to outsource some marketing people doing the same stuff. Are you still going to be able to do that? Don't know. I think well, California, I think, that's a whole,
0: go ahead. And, and, and I think from that perspective though, too, is is you have companies that are going to take advantage. That's why you need to put protections like this in, in place is you, you've got companies that are going to take advantage of, of, those things, but I think that there's still an appetite from specific people out there that have the skill sets that they need where they may only wanna work for you know three weeks at a time, or they may wanna work after they get home and their kids are in bed um, to earn a little bit more money. So I think it's gonna be interesting to see how that all plays out because I think that there are benefits on both sides to kind of leaving it a little bit undefined um, because there, there, there is a demand from the workforce and there is a demand from the client side too. It gets tricky. And I mean, California is basically its own employment uh, nation in itself. It, you know, some of the other countries that I've worked within from...
1: Well, it's got San Francisco in it with all the tech companies, right? So, yep.
2: boom. Yep. Yeah. They can control a lot of stuff there. I mean, the H-1 visa problem was a huge problem when they capped that. But now that we've become more of a global labor force, there is... The way to curb, uh, you know, the lack of talent is by going internationally. In a lot of cases, um, I know that brings up a lot of international laws, but there is a way to just off uh, uh, offshore that to another company. Um,
3: I mean, I, I did that when you know the, my role. There were there were just some jobs that were like, gosh, we we need these things done, but we don't have time. We don't have the desire, whatever it is, and I outsource those jobs. Um, and they were outside, those people were outside the country. They, you know, I facilitated payment through the platform Mm -hmm. and because they were where they were located, I could shoot a job at the end of the day and have catch that job, catch that job back in the morning. And it was this amazingly flexible way to do our work. That was Mm -hmm. so additive to the success of what we wanted to do. And I think, you know, to me, that was like the magic of this whole gig economy. Outsourcing was there wasn't the marketplace was so large. I could find someone quickly. And the job I had wasn't such that I needed like Jamie's finance chops on it. I needed somebody to do sort of a raw effort. And so it, it was relatively easy to hire someone who was good
2: at it. I love how I get and, p- positioned as the finance guy always. Yeah, well, you well, you well, position you are. yourself
3: that way. Yeah, you yeah, like to
2: come position on. yourself that way. Well, it, it, if, uh, there are
3: two things it, I know about you, finance and Notre Dame. That's what I know.
2: Marquette no, basketball, Marquette. White Sox baseball. <laughs> come on, Dustin's the White Sox guy. They had a great game last night. Their offense is turning. Um, one, <laughs> one thing to think about from a finance perspective Oh, you need I to know, why we think of him as Mr. I know, Finance. but you need to know this is a data perspective. I'm more of a data guy than anything else. Uh-huh. Let's be mm-hmm. honest. I just have a finance mm-hmm. spin to it, but um, you should know everybody okay. on your team and everybody in your company, their hourly pay. And then you should look at everything that they're doing on an hourly basis and say, should that really be done by that person? If you're paying somebody a hundred bucks an hour to do some sort of task even if it's smaller, the company's wasting money by spending a hundred bucks an hour on somebody pulling together some sort of spreadsheet, which you can offshore or send down to a lower level person. And those are the decisions that should be made for almost every level at every uh, company. And you should offshore as much of the lower end stuff as possible because those are the tasks that don't have a lot of the secret sauce. Those are the tasks that are wasting the time of your higher paid resources that are supposed to be analyzing the data, let them go get the data. Let them go get the, let them put the presentations together. There was a company we used to use called, I think it was called super slide. Uh, they would just, we would send them our PowerPoint and they would make it look better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. do something like that. I would advise every company to do that type of stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, and That's what we were doing. It worked really well. And I've always enjoyed this quote from Layla Jaina is, is talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. Um, so when you have companies that go out there and need a Java developer, um, there are very, very skilled people um, out there around globally that can complete some of the, the operations that you need in some of those, not necessarily just even the minimal tasks, but people that are very, very skilled at being able to go out and, and design some of these uh, these things. So I think that there's there's a lot of talent out there that is available that just isn't being tapped yet. Um, and that's where I think ultimately, at the end of the day, the, just the ethical questions start to come up, um, you know, where, where do we start to offshore more or where do we uh, put the, the barrier up against offshoring some of these projects, um, just because there are skilled people that exist um, outside of the U.S. And, and in our territories.
2: So Dustin, if you are going to be a contractor, mm-hmm. so for some of these guys that are, let, let's say some of the, our audience members are sitting there going, man, can I make more money being a contractor? How would you, I, I know you've never really done that, but you've recruited these people. How would you give guidance on if they should or shouldn't, and how would they go about getting getting
0: um, hired? A, a, a lot of the most successful ones that we did, in one of my teams um, at my previous employer, we were focused on high, finding the highest highest value talent within our platform. Um, so they'd go out and build the relationships where, and the the, the Consistent stories out there were they were very successful at another job. Um, They started taking on more and more outside opportunities through different platforms or through different connections and networks that they had. Um, And then at at a certain point, they kind of figured out that, hey, we're making a lot of money on the side. I'm going to go and just run my own business essentially um, and really start to do this as a freelancer versus full time. Um, I think that the most successful ones have a very very strong and tight network that they work within um, they have consistent clients that they are able to go back to um, and, and pull different work from um, when they do slow down or or things like that but is there a skill
2: set is there a preferred skill set
0: it's it's across the board I mean there there are some people that are making a lot of money doing stuff that you wouldn't even think um, is, is something that 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 would be uh, you, you know they're making six figures a year doing stuff that you wouldn't even um, believe um, but there's there are also people that because like what give
2: me an example like what do you mean by that like trimming uh, Pete's uh, mustache
0: they can make six figures well, <laughs>
3: well, I don't know how I, much money I can't money they
0: imagine do that um, but there's um, a lot of design I mean there's there's a lot of design people that do very high level design um, yeah. for large organizations or for niche organizations um, where can get commoditized at a certain level, you know, people can put together PowerPoints for you know, yeah. 20 bucks per, per slide or whatever it is at the end of the day. But there's people out there that are making significant amounts of money doing it professionally and doing it really well for um, organizations on a long-term basis.
2: So if you have a, de- like, I agree with that. So design is a, is a good one because it actually is your own creativity and artwork. Mm-hmm. So if you have a design eye, you can go out and make some free money. Or some, not free money, some additional money uh, on what you're doing today. So if you're a younger sales guy and you actually like design, that could be a spot to start doing some side gigs, right? Mm -hmm. What other, anything else, any other advice for...
0: A lot of popular stuff is like help desk or, or, or tech support, um, where people can go and, and plug in at the end of the day, you know, two hours after the kids go to bed and they're making a couple hundred bucks, you know, doing some stuff for large tech companies that that need people that are experts that might do it full time during the day, um, but just have a few hours that they want to, to throw at it at the end of the day. Um, anything technical, uh, developers, um, architecture, those types of things are people that can come in and and work for a few hours here and there for different companies um, and maintain a pretty good book of business on top of, you know, their their regular day job if they wanted to. So there's there's a lot of things. I think if you are really good at what you do or you have a really in-demand skill set and you aren't totally engulfed by life or family or work, um, and you have a few hours, I think that it's a good option for for people uh, out there. What I will say is it's not like Uber, um, where you can turn it on and turn it off um, for a large portion of, of the, you know, work that we did out there, because mm-hmm. there are companies that need to operate within certain hours. Um, so it's not necessarily like the gig economy where you think about Uber or Lyft or anything like that. It's, it's people trying to work from different time zones and figure out ways to make money in different time zones um, to work with different clients and get different experience. How
1: many people have more than one job at the same time, guys?
3: Well, I, I bet more than we think.
2: Yeah, <laughs> more, more I, than, I, mean, I would I, bet I, you a majority are working never, some other way. Right?
3: That's right. Well, we've I've never hit. met or worked with a graphic designer who just did the full-time job that, I you know they were on my team for they always had a side gig always
0: we we have kids um we they were doing at home learning for the past couple of months too and they all did side gigs during <laughs> their classes yeah. yeah it was all fortnite and uh uh you know all that well classes going on too and there But crazy. you know
3: I think what's interesting is I think you know what is a what is a side gig is a good conversation and Pete that's the right question to a- ask because I've even worked with people who i would think were in roles that they wouldn't have a side gig doing their normal day job and they did right they were doing demand gen for some other company while they were not you know on the clock uh, with us so so yeah i think there's all sorts of different opportunities for side gigs
2: yeah i would think the only rules for anyone that's new out there because you know i've ventured in a bunch of side gigs is as long as you're not doing a side gig using what you currently have with your current company or the competitor of your current company. Yes. Yeah. If you're doing something that is on your own and completely distinct, that's good. If you do anything close to that, guys, don't. You're you're going to get
0: caught. Yeah. Um,
1: well, companies yeah, are that, putting that, it in their HR paperwork, right? Yeah, they are.
0: Uh, which yeah. They were. And, and with, with our with our clients, there were a lot of NDAs that were signed and needed to be signed, especially for the larger organizations that we dealt with.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, I think another interesting topic besides uh, the White Sox going for their second sweep today um, is uh, Dustin. So Dustin is exactly in the situation that we've talked about and I talk about a lot in our company, right? So in 2020, you already showed the jacket that you won, yep. Um Companies out there often make for winning what best leader, best leader, best delivery leader in in the entire company, in the entire company, in the entire company, public company. When did you get that? When did you get that award, Dustin?
0: Uh, February, February, Uh, right at the end of February. Yep.
2: Okay. Companies are going to make business decisions. It's not personal. Dustin in February won that award for 2020, and. In what, end of March or April? When, when did you get Mid, notified?
0: Mid-April, mid-April.
2: Mid-April, he got reorged out, right? Which is a complete shame. And I, But at the same time, I think it's a great learning uh, tool. And you could speak to this about how you need to always be thinking that don't be loyal to the company as much as you think, because the company's going to make business decisions. That's what it's there for. It's there to make money and it's going to reorg when it needs to reorg. And even if though you think you're doing great, you gotta always be prepared, right? Because it's going to come up and
0: bite you in the ass. Yes. And I mean, that's what, that's what I think the most painful part of this, uh, uh, this was, was, you know, just having that recognition and then such a quick turnaround and being blindsided like that. It was, it was really tough. And you know, being able to not having a resume put together. If you're, if you have the ability yeah. to do that during a PIP plan or, you know, having tough conversations with a leader, I think, I think that that you start to think about, okay, I have to have a secondary plan, but, but getting caught off guard is is something that uh, was, was definitely difficult.
2: Which happens with reorgs for the <laughs> yeah. most part. right? Yeah. Everything's
0: got to be quiet. I don't
3: disagree with you, although I'm not sure it's about loyalty. I think it's about preparation. So the place that I've gotten to and, and what I start doing is you're just prepared for your next opportunity. And 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 there's a there's a really great I mean, there's a book on it. I read the Harvard Business Case Study, um, uh, this, the guy at LinkedIn, whose name Reed Hoffman, Who you know, he did this whole thing about tour of duty. Right. And it's like you join a business for a tour of duty. And at some point that tour of duty is over and you move on and the way that it ends could be up to you it could be up to them part of this is the honesty of the conversation about the tour of duty but part of it is this realization that this is for a period of time it is not forever and and your ability to be prepared is is how you deal with that i I don't think it's about loyalty as much as i I I guess although dustin your your feelings are valid it's like (laughs) you still got to be prepared. I think, I think,
2: let me, let me, after hearing what you said, let me reframe my word from loyalty. It's more about, I've dealt with kids and, and even myself where you're sort of not prepared. You're not working on your next move because you're just assuming that since you're doing a good job today, there's no way anything's going to ever come correct. There's yes. never any bad news. It's always rainbows and unicorns. Yes. It's always be networking, A-B-N. Totally. And, uh,
0: and, and that's what I was going to say. I mean, some of the, the, the best advice that I could give everybody, you know, being prepared isn't having a resume together or having a um, LinkedIn profile updated. It's it's really making sure that the relationships that you've built over time um, within your industry or within your experience yeah. are still there. Um, th- yeah. There were people that reached out just you know, the day that it happened and then everybody had heard. So they, they, they've they helped me along the way. Um, So it, it's made the transition easier. It doesn't make it any less painful, but it's made it easier to know that I have a support network in place to be able to rely on for things like re- references and for, you know, people watching out for opportunities that I might not be able to see um, out there too.
3: Isn't it typical to get to the last few minutes of the podcast and that's really where the Important conversation happens, right? Because that's
0: that—that
3: yeah. that is it. Like you, the, the most important thing. And if we think about Pete, you keep going back to like this podcast for the young leaders and the people who are leading new teams. Like, what do they need to do? How can we help their career the most? Your network is the number one most important thing you can nurture throughout the career, without a doubt. And and then two, that pragmatism about your job and your tour of duty, I think, is really important to have. Like you can. Mm-hmm. This isn't to say go somewhere and not kick ass. Like you have to kick ass. That's what's going to get you the next thing. But you have to be pragmatic about how long does that tour last. And, and that mindset, I think, then gives you the, the ability to have a good, candid conversation with your organization. And that doesn't mean that a surprise isn't going to happen, but it is definitely going to give you the ability to have a meaningful, candid conversation.
0: And and as much as you want to burn a bridge, or as much as uh, you you want to just you know scream at people, I would strongly recommend you don't do that. Oh um, it's yeah, hard to, it's hard to re- stay uh, unemotional about it. Yeah. Um. But you never know who that person knows, or or within especially the talent acquisition industry, it's such it's so incestual. Um. Everybody yeah. knows everybody by the time you get to a certain point within it. Um, so sure. That, have those relationships and you have to have people that think of you in a positive way or else you you're going to burn yourself. Yeah.
2: Down. These are great oh. mistakes that I've learned. And Pete oh, for yeah. sure has learned <laughs> nah. don't burn bridges. <laughs> nah. um, and don't piss off people just no. because, just because you're right and they're wrong. Doesn't mean you. Uh, it's called um, ca- candor. Yeah. candor, Candor. <laughs> candor. Yeah, so I'm gonna say is the dumbest thing ever, and everyone said that, and it drove me nuts. Why do um, I got it? Why do you do that? So just remember, don't make your life mission to be grumpy and angry at everybody, and fight everything. It took me a while to learn that because, and granted, I was right, um, Here, let me, but it's sometimes it's it sometimes be okay it- to be wrong every time.
1: Let's wrap it up because I think yeah. Dustin's had enough of us. <laughs> the, instead of spending 20 years at a company, how long should you spend at a company? Five tops?
2: I think you should reevaluate every two years.
1: All right. That's good enough. Yep. Thanks for listening to The Sassholes. On behalf of Jason, Jamie, myself, Pete, we want to thank you for listening. Dustin, thanks for coming on the show, man. And go White Sox.
0: Go White Sox. Thanks, Dustin. Thanks, guys. <laughs>
3: bye, bye. Please right, give us
1: fa- please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram. And follow us on Twitter. Cue the non copyrighted music. <laughs>